this special episode of Stacks and Stories, the podcast of the Mississippi Library Commission. On today's episode, University of Mississippi Associate Professor of History and African American Studies, Shanette Garrett Scott, discusses Black women's role in the fight for suffrage in Mississippi through boycotts, armed resistance, and much more. This presentation was made possible through a grant by the Mississippi Humanities Council. Please note that the audio has been pulled from the video, Black Women and the Suffrage Movement in Mississippi, 1863 to 1965, originally recorded on June 26, 2020, as part of the Mississippi Library Commission's lunch lecture series. The audio has been edited to better fit the podcast format. Stay tuned. Okay, we'll begin. Um, hello and welcome to the Library Commission Summer Lunch Lecture Series. These lectures are sponsored by the Mississippi Humanities Council, and this week's event is co-hosted by the Madison County Library System. Before we get started, you'll be muted throughout so we can pay attention to our speaker. If you want to comment, just put it in the chat and we'll loop back to those questions at the very end. And then once we get through those, you can unmute and ask questions directly at the end too. So today we're gonna to hear from Dr. Shanette Garrett Scott, who's gonna tell us about black women and the suffrage movement in Mississippi, 1863 to 1965. Dr. Garrett Scott is a native Texan and an associate professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Mississippi. Her research focuses on race, gender, and capitalism. An in-demand speaker, she has lectured and conducted workshops across the United States and internationally. Her first book, Banking on Freedom, A History of Black Women in Banking, published by Columbia University Press, was shortlisted for the 2020 Hagley Prize for the best book in business history and it won Best Book in African-American Women's History Prizes from the Association of Black Women Historians and the Organization of American Historians. Dr. Garrett Scott is featured in the PBS documentary, Boss, The Black Experience in Business, and is a consultant for an upcoming documentary series about women's suffrage for Mississippi public broadcasting. Follow her on Twitter at Yvonne Rebel, and keep an eye out for her new website, www.sgarrettscott.com. So welcome to Dr. Garrett Scott, and I will let you take it away. Great. Hello, everyone. I thank you, Tracy, for inviting me, and thank you to everyone who has shown up. So I went back and forth, and Tracy and I discussed this about whether or not to show slides or to show myself, but I decided kind of at the last minute that I probably should do the slides. I think that it would be easier for people to follow, to look at the slides and just listen to me talk. But after the presentation, I'll come back on and we will have our Q&A. So remember the slide, links to the slides are also in the chat. And I plan to talk for just about 40 minutes or so and that should leave us about 15, 10 to 15 minutes for questions. So let me share my screen. Ida Bell's smile. This, Jim Wells figured, would be the last image in his mind before the bullet blew his brains out. One of the two gunmen in the room trained his rifle straight at Nelson Gill, a white Union veteran from Illinois, and the other nervously swung his gun between Wells 
and the about three dozen other black men and women gathered at Gills's Holly Springs home. The two gunmen burst through the door just as the gathering had finished its prayer. Now, Jim Wales recognized both of the gunmen, Jim House and William Holland, one a former enslaver, the other editor of the local Holly Springs newspaper, both Klansmen. It was only 1867, and the KKK in Mississippi only occasionally hid their identities from freed people. They terrorized through night raids, beatings, and threats to run them out of town. House and Holland weren't even dressed in the distinctive Black Klan robes of the uh, Mississippi Klan. They wanted the people there to know who they were. What happened next was a blur. House said something, or maybe it was Holland, a shot rang out. The bullet missed Gill and chaos erupted in the room. Men and women screamed, ducked to the floor. Some ran from the house. The two gunmen looked at each other and they left. Perhaps, you know, the adrenaline that was coursing through their veins had subsided. Perhaps they had really never mustered the courage to shoot a man in cold blood. Besides, the message had been sent. You vote, you die. Now, I have taken some creative liberties in retelling this story. Like, I do not know for sure exactly how many people were in Nelson Gills' home. Jim Wells, who was Ida B. Wells Barnett's father, may have been at the meeting. He, after all, religiously attended Loyal League meetings. And I imagined that his mind turned to his first child, um, his daughter. He certainly could have thought about his wife, Lizzie, or his other two small children. But what I do know for sure is that those two white men, House and Holland, barged into that Loyal League meeting at Gills's house, intent on shooting him to send a message to Blacks in Holly Springs. And Blacks in Holly Springs made up about 60% of the electorate. So feed people had been very active and open about the fact that they were no longer the enslaved property bound to do what their former enslavers demanded but free people who would choose to do what they pleased and they wanted to vote. Now, what I cannot know for 100% certainty, but I know based on my skill as a historian, based on the scant evidence that has made its way down to us, based on the post-Civil War experiences of other free people, I know this women were there. So in my brief talk today, I hope to share with you the intensely political character of Black Mississippian women's lives from the Emancipation Era to the passage of the 19th Amendment to passage of the Voting Rights Act. Now, it is not accurate to celebrate the 19th Amendment as 100 years of women's right to vote because the right did not extend to many women like Native Americans and immigrant women and others' rights were suppressed, particularly Black women. 
Now, the formal ballot had power, but it was a very particular kind of power. Now, Black women certainly acted in very political ways without it. So even without the formal franchise, they forced state actors to reckon with their demands, demands that went beyond what we might see as electoral politics. They fought for improvements to schools, access to healthcare, for better conditions in their workplaces and communities and more. They made the personal political. And Black women's political activisms collapsed these false distinctions between private and public, personal and political. And these women folded their organizations, institutions that they funded, led, and controlled. So secret societies, church groups, and women's clubs, these seemingly non-political institutions created and were part of a vibrant Black women's political culture. So these women transformed meeting rooms, parlors, kitchens, and sharecropping fields into sites of activism and resistance. So in my talk today, I am only able to highlight three of the key periods in Black women's fight for suffrage and their political voice. Black women never stopped being active politically in any period of American history, but today I'm just going to talk really briefly about three periods in particular. The Emancipation Era and Reconstruction, the period right before and immediately after passage of the 19th Amendment, and the decade before passage of the Voting Rights Act in 1965. So my goal is to communicate at least three important things. There are three things that I really hope that you take away from this talk today. First, I want to convince you that Black women's political culture included and went beyond the woman's suffrage movement. And leading from that premise, I will make my second case which is that the intensely political character of Black women's lives, that the challenges and the obstacles that they faced to full citizenship led them to act in very political ways, even though they did not possess the franchise. And finally, their actions went far beyond just a demand for civil rights. Black women's political culture critiqued U.S. society in ways that called attention to their experiences, to the multiple overlapping oppressions and challenges that they faced, barriers that they faced, not just as women, but because of their race, their class, and these other important aspects of their identity. So let's start off by talking about Black Mississippi women's political culture in the decades after the Civil War and how they reacted to passage of the 15th Amendment, which gave Black men, but not Black women, the right to vote. So like many Blacks who lived in Holly Springs, Jim and Lizzie Wells, Ida B. Wells' parents, became politically active after the Civil War, especially through the Loyal Leagues, which are also called Union Leagues. 
And these leagues were first formed in the North before the war, but after the war, these leagues spread quickly throughout the South, including Mississippi, and growing into the largest Black political organization in the South. And these leagues counted hundreds of thousands of Black men in their official membership numbers, but women were certainly active in these leagues. Black women advocated women's suffrage even as they supported passage of the 15th Amendment and the franchise for Black men. And women held loyal league meetings and other kinds of political meetings, not just in their homes, but in the homes of their white employers. They attended political rallies. We know this because whites remarked negatively on the presence of Black women at these political meetings. And Black women participated in debates about candidates and about the issues. They marched in parades. They campaigned and raised money for candidates. They monitored polling places. They counted ballots. And most important, they shared the franchise. They shared the vote. So Black women, they understood that they had a vital stake in Black men's franchise. And the fact that only men had been granted the right to vote did not at all mean to them that only men should exercise that right. So a man's single vote expressed the collective will of the women and even the children in his life. So Black women made decisions about how their fathers, husbands, and sons would exercise their shared political power. Now, violence really marked all the years after, civil, after the Civil War, but especially during redemption, which is this period in the 1970s. And redemption kind of refers to this period when Mississippians sought to redeem the state. That is, they wanted to reinstitute white supremacy. They wanted to purge all Republican Party influence from the state. And they just wanted to turn back all the gains that African-Americans had made politically, socially, and economically. So local democratic clubs told Blacks, for example, who went to the polls that anyone voting Republican would not be able to get employment or a sharecropping contract the next year. Newspapers reporting on the Starkville riot of 1871 or the Tunica War of 1874, that gives you some sense of the violent repression that Blacks faced in Vicksburg, Yazoo City, Clinton, Oxford, and other places throughout Mississippi. The tactics that these people used to hold back the vote range from fraud, intimidation and harassment, kidnapping, driving tenants and farmers from their land, beatings and lynching. And so women as political actors who went to the polls, who participated in parades and these mass political meetings, who openly expressed their support of the Republican Party, women counted among the hundreds lynched. In Lafayette County is how they say it in Mississippi. For example, the KKK, which I want to note, included the police, businessmen, and prominent civic leaders in the town, boasted of killing more than two dozen 
black men and women and then throwing their bodies into the Yakana River. In Monroe County, Democrats shot up a church where women and children had gathered before walking together to the polls. So Black women then faced this considerable physical risk, even death, because of their political activities during Reconstruction. So this extra-legal violence and the economic repression of redemption was buttressed. It was, it was reinforced. It was institutionalized with laws like the 1876 election law and, of course, the capstone, the 1890 uh, Constitution, which effectively stripped Black men and, by extension, Black women of the formal ballot. So just to give you a sense of, of how effective um, this mix of violence, economic repression, and legal disenfranchisement was, in 1867, 70% of the eligible Black men in Mississippi were registered to vote. By 1892, just two years after passage of the Constitution, that number stood at less than 6%. Loyal Leagues, however, had not been the only formal site of women's political politics. Remember I said before, churches, secret societies, schools, clubs, these had all been places where women addressed intricately linked political, economic, social, and personal concerns. So let's explore some of their activities before and after passage of the 19th Amendment. So the interlocking influence of racism and sexism constrained Black women's voice in formal politics, but it also expanded their political concerns and their political imaginations. So regarding the formal ballot, Black women participated in Mississippi only peripherally in what was essentially a white woman's suffrage movement. And the reasons for their absence are both simple and also complex. So the simple reason is that white women's suffrage groups in Mississippi and throughout the South stoked these fears of what they called Negro domination. So pro-suffrage arguments and appeals assured white men that white women's votes would uphold racial segregation, not destabilize it. And some, you know, of these women suffragists use virulently racist rhetoric, but for most others, their rhetoric was far more quiet and refined and polite, exhibited in, you know, these innocuous or euphemistic kinds of terms like educational and property qualifications. But all of this rhetoric on both sides, the kind of virulently racist as well as the very polite society rhetoric, all served to shore up the system of white supremacy. And so let me be really clear about what I mean by white supremacy. So Black women had to address not only racist behavior and attitudes, but they also had to confront these political and economic and cultural systems, these institutions and structures in which whites overwhelmingly control the power and the material resources, in which these conscious and unconscious ideas about white superiority and entitlement are widespread. 
and in which the relations of kind of white dominance and non-white, in this case, African-American subordination are just daily reenacted across a broad array of institutions and social settings. And so I'm borrowing that definition of white supremacy from Frances Lee Ansley in, in her book, Critical White Studies. So the key is I'm not just talking about individual actions alone, but these kind of structural inequities that Black women had to face. So one would not really speak of a Black suffragist in Mississippi because suffrage was only one part of Black women's political concerns. And those political concerns included economic issues, such as employment opportunities and safe workspaces, equalization of education and teachers' pay, mass incarceration, convict leasing, the treatment of quote-unquote juvenile delinquents, anti-lynching legislation, and Jim Crow discrimination in jobs and housing and healthcare and public accommodation. So these women, they didn't have the vote. And even when they got the vote, they knew that that was only one part of what they needed to try to address this broad range of political concerns. And so women relied mostly on collective action. So in addition to their mutual aid and these secret societies and church groups, in 1903, six women's clubs in Mississippi met together to form the Mississippi State Federation of Colored Women's Clubs. And I'll refer to them as the Mississippi State Federation. So they started with six, but by 1940, more than 70 diverse clubs were part of the Mississippi Federation. Now, I only have time in this very brief presentation to just outline just a few of the Mississippi Federation's most important local and uh, goals, but they also had local, state, and national initiatives. So in the years before and after passage of the 19th Amendment, Black women bound together to address issues of critical importance to Black communities. So the Mississippi State Legislature never passed suffrage for women, but after passage of the 19th Amendment, its sentiments, though, stood firmly with the newly enfranchised white women voters. And Mississippi suffragist Belle Kearney had warned about the, quote, horror of Negro suffrage, end quote, and she advanced a fears about, quote, a dark tented regime, end quote, you know, engulfing the state. And so these women who were deeply invested in the system of white supremacy that buttressed and privileged their position, these white Southern suffragists publicly supported disenfranchising Black women. So no women in Mississippi voted in 1920 because the legislature conveniently used a registration deadline rule to exclude all women from the polls. But Black women did stay busy. Black women recognized the importance of their newfound civic right in 1920 the Mississippi Federation created a number of new departments, including a civics department. 
that was led by Mary Montgomery Booze of Mount Bayou. And in 1921, they attempted to enroll at local courthouses and registrar's office, and they encouraged women to pay their poll taxes. They called for federal enforcement of the 19th Amendment, and they worked within the Republican Party structure in the hopes that this service would be rewarded with full citizenship rights. And so those who were able to register did cast ballots. Women also supported colored Republican clubs. And in 1924, Mary Booz would help to organize the National League of Republican Women, and she became the first African-American woman to sit on the Republican National Committee. But just as in Reconstruction, whites resorted to extra-legal violence, to disenfranchisement practices like literacy tests, and also economic repression to control women voters. So for example, in 1929, a Black woman explained why it was that Black women in Jackson, Mississippi did not form a political club or even press openly for their voting rights. She wrote to Nanny Helen Burroughs, well, we have some good women but they do not want their names published because the whites will publish their names in the paper because white principals and school board members threatened to fire them if they voted. So a number of these women were teachers. But despite these threats, Black women continued to address issues of citizenship rights and economic opportunity by advocating issues around issues that are close to home. So the racial climate of Mississippi meant that kind of open agitation for civil rights could be a death sentence. At the same time, though, the state did not hide its disdain for its disenfranchised citizens. Black citizens suffered poor funding of schools, lack of adequate housing and municipal services, low pay for teachers. So these issues, such as community health initiatives that the Mississippi Federation undertook, including organizing National Negro Health week activities and raising money for Black hospitals in Mississippi, raising money for schools, which received just a fraction of state funding compared to white schools, as well as neighborhood beautification projects, essay contests, all of these kinds of activities allowed Black women to flex their political muscle. They petitioned local and state and federal legislatures. They raised money from multiple sources and they mobilized constituencies from across the state. And so as the young historian, Kamara Heron argues, the leaders of the Mississippi Federation remade themselves as power brokers. And they leveraged their economic buying power in their social influence to make these appeals for public recognition and for funds. They were carving out public space. So the Federation opened a home for the elderly, a training school for Black children, a YWCA in Jackson. So they created these sites of Black authority and care, community care, that challenged the policies of segregation and Jim Crow disenfranchisement. So even without the vote, Black women highlighted the state and the local government and even the federal government's failures. And they empowered themselves to administer public services, to be the kind of political voice for their communities. 
they created a civic culture that was committed to black self-respect, to economic independence, education, and social justice, in which black women's priorities, their values were central in which they actively participated. So we are more than halfway through our talk. And in the last 10 minutes or so, I will talk about women's efforts to secure federal protections for their voting rights as part of the civil rights movement. But I'm really going to privilege their more radical fight for economic justice. So the early civil rights movement in post-World War II Mississippi did not focus on integration. Vital institutions and businesses filled Black communities. I mean, just think about the Black Wall Street on Ferris Street in Jackson. So these vital businesses and institutions meant that most Black Mississippians wanted the political and economic tools to enhance their communities and equalize resources. For them, that was a more important priority than integrating socially, you know, with whites. So here, the vote proved even more critical. Now, some people, of course, they did want, you know, were arguing for equal access, you know, for example, to graduate and professional school education. Think about Clinton King, one of the first Black people to try to integrate the University of Mississippi in the late 1950s. And of course, you know, people argued and agitated for uh, job opportunities in the mainstream U.S. economy. But another really important point to be made about the civil rights movement before I talk about women again is that nonviolence was the exception, not the rule. Black Mississippians wholeheartedly believed in armed self-defense and many rejected the national NAACP and other national civil rights organizations stance against direct action, so against direct protest. So economic justice then took center stage in the early Mississippi civil rights movement. So boycotts, selective buying campaigns, buy black campaigns, this really comprised black people's opening salvos in the late 1940s. And though black men like Dr. T.R.M. Howard and Medgar Evers were the visible public face, these economic campaigns were especially dependent on black women, not only as foot soldiers, but really as the guiding spirit because black women typically controlled family budgets. And so their participation and their support were essential to the success of these economic tinged campaigns. In addition, they did most of the family shopping. And so they were more vulnerable, the most vulnerable to the demeaning social etiquette that surrounded their shopping experience. For example, they could not try on clothes or hats and stores, they couldn't use dressing rooms or bathrooms, and they had to wait until whites to be served. So one early boycott campaign that received really national recognition was the 1952 Don't Buy Gas Where You Can't Use the Bathroom campaign and was organized by the Regional Council of Negro Leadership. So the RCNL held mass meetings. They attracted over 10,000 people, but it had almost no women in its executive leadership, nor did any women speak publicly from the dais. But the boycott, however, 
really depended on Black women's participation. And Black women really mobilized around this campaign and made it successful because they were the ones who really suffered the most humiliation and danger of sexual violence from having to squat in fields or isolated, unsanitary outhouses to use the bathroom when they were traveling. So in the 1960s, other kinds of economic activism, including like boycotts of the Mississippi State Fair and these selective buying campaigns, especially around Easter and Christmas, for example, on Capitol Street in Jackson was one of the um, really big campaigns. In Cahoma County, Black women led boycotts of local stores, as well as national chains like J.C. Penney's and Woolworth's and Walgreens. These women boycotters demanded that store owners and employees use courtesy titles such as Mrs. and Miss, and that Black customers, who were mostly women, receive service on a first-come, first-served basis. So Black women also compiled Black lists, which included the names and businesses of white citizen council members to boycott. So they responded to the economic exploitation and harassment of the white citizens councils with their own Black lists. So beyond economic activism, Black women also were among the first to um, attempt to register to vote. So Victoria Jackson Gray Adams of Hattiesburg was among the first people to test voter registration restrictions um, in her town, and she led voter registration efforts. She was really instrumental in getting the movement started in Hattiesburg. And she, like so many other Black women activists that all of whom I cannot name, were really instrumental in, in connecting local movements with national organizations like the Student Nonviolence Coordinating Committee and other national um, civil rights organizations. Of course, as you probably know, she was a founding member of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. And there you see a, one of their campaign signs. So I cannot begin to talk about the individual women who were so important to the Mississippi movement, but I will just mention a few of the unsung kind of collective actions of women. So Black women actively participated in poll tax movements and campaigns for Black men who were seeking office. So for example, the sophisticated Laverettes Civic and Social Club in Jackson raised money for Reverend Robert L.T. Smith's congressional campaign. So Black women also ensured that these national civil rights organizations attended to other issues that seemed to be unrelated to voting or to voter registration, issues that were high priority for women, especially working women and mothers. For example, Black women connected to the Council of Federated Organizations, or COFO in Jackson, began an initiative to provide childcare services during the day for the children of Black women who worked, uh, especially in agricultural labor. And also discussions of white teachers beating Black children in the schools and of white men sexually assaulting Black women stood right alongside editorials about the White Citizens Council and criticism of Black newspapers that did not support the movement in the Woman's Voice section of the handmade Jackson newsletter, The Eagle Eye. 
So a host of concerns animated Black women's fight for the vote. They included, of course, the kind of strictly political issues, but they were also interested in economic issues that addressed the inequities inherent in American capitalism, as well as a special concern for women as workers and professionals, but also as wives, mothers, and caregivers. So as I close my talk, I want to revisit really quickly my comment about nonviolence in the movement. So women were not only on the front lines, but they also suffered racial sexual violence for their commitment to the fight for the vote and for civil and economic equity. So I want to reiterate, nonviolence was the exception, not the rule. Activists debated and at times rejected the usefulness of nonviolence, especially because they faced such prolific violence from whites in Mississippi, lynchings, bombings, beatings, gang rape, and other kinds of sexual abuse and harassment, and even mass starvation. And here I'm thinking about the 1962 food blockade in LaFleur County. So Blacks actively engaged in and advocated armed self-defense. And because I wanna definitely leave time for questions, I'll just leave you with these images here. But I do wanna just quickly mention that the movement in Mississippi even had a squad of black women enforcers. So the Natchez Deacons for Self-Defense did not recruit women as members, but women played a significant role in enforcing sanctions on internal enemies to the movement. So during an economic boycott in 1965, women punished female informers. So they, were, they suspected that there were certain Black domestics who were providing either voluntarily or through coercion information to the white power structure. So a team of NAACP women was organized to physically discipline the suspected informants. And armed women, of course, were at the forefront of the Black power movement in Mississippi. So to be sure, Black women put themselves in the line of fire. They suffered imprisonment, brutal beatings, and rape and sexual abuse in their fight for voting rights. And I think it's important that we highlight the sexual exploitation aspect for Black women as part of their political activism and as an important political concern. So it might seem kind of unnecessary. You might even think, you know, that it's kind of lurid to kind of talk Talk about sexual violence, but it's really crucial, and I'm really borrowing here from Danielle McGuire and her work at the dark end of the street, it's really crucial that we hear the testimonies of women through their voices and through their bodies who countered this effort to shame or stereotype them as, you know, unchaste or loose. And it is a way to recognize their personhood and to recognize the continuing racial sexual violence against Black women, especially trans and queer women that continues today. So as I close, if one looks only for membership in suffrage clubs or the exercise of formal power in the halls of state to understand the development of political power for Black women, they do so at their own peril. They miss the rich political culture that Black women forged before the end of the Civil War and that continues to this day. To be sure, 
Black women participated and, and helped organize what we recognize and acknowledge as political work. They usually constituted the majority at the mass meetings. They did voter registration work. They led marches to the courthouse. They served time in prison. And they later even ran for Congress. But their focus on issues of economic justice and economic equality highlight some of the ways that we misremember the movement, which was not only about equal rights or voting, but also about the fundamental transformation of people's economic conditions. As working women with families and communities to support, Black women wanted to build a future fields with opportunity for their children, their loved ones, their neighbors. The activism and institution building that Black women undertook in the absence of suffrage helped Black women refine their multi-pronged, their really complex and deep critique of, of U.S. political economy and democracy. So I have a few resources to get you started here. This is a small list of resources. There were so many other books that I could have added, but I wanted to just mention a few here, particularly about Mississippi women. Uh, Nora Lee Frankel's Freedoms Women is a great book to understand Black women's lives uh, around the Civil War and in the area of emancipation. One of the classic texts about Black women and the vote is Dr. Turborg Penn's book. And to understand and the armed self-defense movement in Mississippi, Akinyele Umoja's uh, We Will Shoot Back is a central reading. To understand the ways in which African-American women, you know, mobilized around issues that were really central to Black women, including sexual, racial sexual terror. Danielle McGuire's book is great. To understand women and kind of the image and their meaning in Black power, Ashley Farmer's book is wonderful and to just get an understanding of Black women's contributions to U.S. history, the new, very readable, very accessible book by Dinah Berry and Callie Gross is a must read as well. Let us stop sharing and go back and I can't wait for questions. All right. Well, thank you so much for that. That was Absolutely fascinating, and I'm glad you let us look at the, the slides because, yeah, especially because of the photos, seeing people that you're talking about is very helpful. Yeah. Okay, so we had a couple of questions in chat. One question was about the Federation. Is it still around? Is it still active? Yes, the Mississippi State Federation of Colored Women's Clubs is still active. In fact, when the museum opened in Jackson, I you know, kind of went down there to visit and they had brought a van full of these majestic looking African-American women to come. And so I learned that many clubs are still very active. And the young historian that I mentioned, Kamara Heron, was a graduate student of mine. So I was very proud to quote her work, is working on the Federation. And I get just really excited about what she can bring to light about their history. And they do have a website. So you can also follow their activities and learn about clubs that are in your area. Another question, can you tell us more about the experiences of Mississippi's African-American women as they tried to register or vote in the early 20s after ratification of the 19th Amendment? 
yes. So as I mentioned, African-American women faced resistance to their ability to vote. So there is some evidence of African-American women being threatened with losing their jobs if they continue to try to vote, especially professionals, African-American women professionals. So as I mentioned in Jackson, so teachers, people whose salaries depended upon the state who were openly threatened with loss of their jobs and also with kind of calling public attention to them. So African-American women's names and identities were published in local papers and also circulated among white communities so that not just uh, teachers, but also domestics, any one women who were suspected of trying to vote were targeted in this way. But I do need to stress that the disenfranchisement kind of well, their laws that were used to disenfranchise Black men were also put to effective use against African-American women. So the literacy tests, making it almost impossible for African-American women to pass those kinds of tests. The poll tax, paying a poll tax was, for some women, a, a significant outlay of money. I think they were about $4. And for some people, that is a significant chunk of their monthly income. Someone has asked, I'm interested in your explanation of nonviolence as an exception. Can you say more about the tension that this might lead to between local and national leaders? So I would have to say that even among national civil rights organizations leadership, there always was a vibrant debate intention about nonviolence versus armed self-defense. Because the reality was that these people on the ground were facing incredible repression and violence. Many people did not feel comfortable leaving the house without their weapons. So it was a vibrant debate and there was a tension, but the tension was more in trying to put on a more public, nonviolent face than it was about completely eradicating armed self-defense. So in Mississippi, for example, Blacks actively engaged in and they advocated for self-defense. So in places like Macomb County, the Macomb movement was particularly violent. And Ora Bryant and Charles Bryant, who were really active in the movement, for example, Ora Bryant one night, she saw someone pull up into her home. She pulled out her shotgun and took a shot. So even though the people in the car had been able to get the bomb out of the car and blow up the front part of her house, her bullet hit the mark. And that whole summer, you know, the rest of that year, she and her husband took turns as armed pickets for, you know, watching out for their homes. So that is, you know, an example of African-Americans, a nonviolent response. And then I also want to mention that even around the Emmett Teal trial, TRM Howard's home, for example, had been kind of a center of information and a place for people to kind of understand the trial that that was taking place and armed pickets and black self-security were, you know, a staple there. We had a question on Facebook. Could you say a few words about the work done on the economic front by women leaders in the movement, such as the goods made and sold in the Freedom Houses and Mrs. Hamer's pig bank? Mm, yes. <laughs> black women's involvement with the economic 
civil rights movement, I guess, if you want to call it, expand from these kind of small kind of home industry that people talked about. So the Mississippi Federation home demonstration county agents were critical in helping African-American women find ways to be financially self-sufficient. So in addition to the wonderful things the Facebook question just mentioned and the things that I mentioned, other kind of small ways, but important ways that these women did their work is by by, you know, canning and making rugs and other kinds of home manufactured items to barter and sell as a way to try to help women be a little more independent of the exploitative sharecropping and crop lean system. Another really important initiative that I think very few people um, know about is this Made in Mississippi campaign. And that was a national campaign in which Mississippians boycotted national companies that produced goods in Mississippi. And they sent out tens of thousands of flyers, 5,000 at least in Mississippi and around the country. And so these included Pet and Carnation Milk and Borden, Westinghouse, GE, you know, major American corporations who had plants in Mississippi or produced part of their goods in Mississippi, you know, people were supposed to ask, was this made in Mississippi? And if so, to boycott those. So the Tri-State Bank in Memphis trying to do loans for Black farmers. So the economic civil rights movement in Mississippi is a really important kind of little known story. We have a couple more. One is more of a comment and then we have another question. Professor Scott, thank you for your presentation. It was definitely enlightening, especially during the current climate of today's discussion of Black Lives Matter, changing of the flag, and the relocation of Confederate monuments. Mm -hmm. Black women's role has always been very important in promoting action and change. And what can you tell us about the reaction of white Republicans in Mississippi to the interest in the party by African-American women? Did they welcome their support or disown it? I'm interested in the long view of the Republican Party as a party of toxic whiteness. Well, I do, I understand perhaps why they have that comment, but to think of the Republican and Democrat in different parts of history is they're different. It's not consistently the same thing. The party in 1920 is not the same as the party in 2020. But the Republican Party always had a really uneasy relationship with African-Americans. And in Mississippi, it's important to note that even though the party was mostly on paper, Blacks wielded an incredible influence in the Republican Party. So for, for decades, they controlled patronage in the state. So their reactions to Black women were similar to their reactions to Black men. They were uneasy with having them as part of the party, but they also understood that they were kind of at least a necessary evil. And I would like to say that some women actually, you know, became kind of political bosses. So Mary Montgomery Booz, for example, had the lock on assigning postmasterships in and around Bolivar County in the 20s and the 30s, so much so that there was a federal investigation, you know, to try to unseat her. So African-American women, some were able to really carve out a really important kind of power within the Republican Party, which always had an uneasy relationship with its Black constituents. We're very interested in the postmasterships. Do you see Black women postmasters there? Yes, and I write ex extensively about Minnie Gettings Cox, who was the first Black women postmistress in Mississippi, who was ousted from her office in 1903. And it wasn't until the 21st century, more than 100 years later, that Indianola, 
had another black postmistress. So it is really ironic that with the expulsion and pushing out of the black postmistress in 1903, that a black woman would come to really control, at least in her little part of Mississippi, who would become postmaster. And of course, those these were all whites, white men and white women, because at that time, even though blacks controlled patronage, it was very difficult for them to actually keep a patronage position. And can you return to the Reconstruction era and explain a little more about activist Black women of that era? Yes, I love talking about Black women's political culture. And one thing I would talk about that Black women were important in is in these kind of public expressions of civic power. So they were really important, for example, in parades. And I don't think that we really can, you know, appreciate the importance of parades. But in Mississippi in particular, a lot of the stuff like the Tunica War or the Clinton riot or race massacre, as we call it today, really revolved around these African-Americans occupying what was considered white space. So African-Americans' claims on space I talk about how they map a kind of civic geography. So as they walk and march in these parades, and I mean, these parades were, you know, wonderful. In Holly Springs in the late 1860s, um, since I know more about Ida B. Wells and her and the political culture that shaped her, there was a parade that whites described as more than a mile long, a procession of African-Americans wearing these red sashes, which were the symbol of, you know, the Republican Party with floats and armed men, so Union veterans wearing their uniforms and holding their arms. But African-American women were really essential because they helped to plan the parades, they sewed the floats and the banners. And again, like I said, to, to me, parades are important because they were making civic claims on space. So even though African-Americans, most of them didn't get land with Reconstruction, these parades, these, pub, these public meetings were a way for them to reclaim, at least to call attention to the ways that they had enriched these spaces. And again, the Nora B. Frankel book is about Freedom's Women is really good. Nancy Burkhaw's book about uh, Black women in Mississippi is also, you know, excellent to understand Black women in Mississippi during Reconstruction. There was a comment about how you also do a talk just on many, many Giddings Cops through the speakers <laughs> and we'll probably hit you up for that at some point. Um, let's see, uh, another question, let's see, actually it's a comment. For those interested in more about the political cultures of Holly Springs and Ida B. Wells, see your essay, co-written with Dr. Jody Skipper, Rondalyn Pears, and Beth Cruz, upcoming in Southern Cultures Journal, yes. a special women's issue in the fall. Right, and it's called Remembering Ida, Ida Remembering, and it's about the, instead of thinking of her as this, I mean, she was not a singularly extraordinary woman, but thinking about the community that molded and shaped her political vision. So looking at Black Mississippians, in particular Black women's political culture in Marshall County. That sounds great. We'll have to look for it. Well, Dr. Garrett Scott, thank you so much for this. This was a fascinating talk. I think we all learned a lot. And you're a great, engaging speaker. And we'll have to do this again. Oh, yes, and and I know that some people I probably didn't answer everyone's questions, but you know you can always Google me. I'm at the University of Mississippi, so I would be more than happy to answer any questions anybody had if they wanted to email me. That's wonderful.
Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Stacks and Stories, the podcast of the Mississippi Library Commission. We hope you will tune in next time, and we encourage you to visit your local public library often.